0: Let me lead us in prayer as we begin. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you recognizing that you are perfectly holy and pure, that there's no shadow of moral shortcoming or failure with you, but Father, there is with us. Help us to come before you this morning and to see in your word a call to purity and help us understand that that is what your will is. It doesn't matter what the culture says or how it changes, your word remains faithful and true. Help me this morning to proclaim it in a a sensitive passage. Help me do it in a way with language that is appropriate, not vulgar, not distracting, but yet also clear and forthright. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like for you this morning to turn in your Bibles in the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 13. This is the last chapter of Hebrews, and it's the one that's devoted to practical matters. They're a bit disjointed. They don't always flow. But here's what you've got if you look at chapter 13. It begins simply with, let love of the brethren continue. So there's a call to mutual love. Then there's a call to show hospitality to the strangers, the orphans, the unfortunate. After that, remember the prisoners, which is the, the basis for what we do in jail ministry. After that, we get to verse 4 that talks about marriage and purity. Then in verse 5, the writer talks about being free from the love of money. And it goes on, there's, there's other practical um, advice given. But I want us to focus this morning on chapter 13, verse 4. Chapter 13, verse 4 says, Let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for fornicators and adulterers God will judge. I was reading last night in Spurgeon. Spurgeon doesn't preach on this particular verse, but he preaches on a related verse in 1 Corinthians 6. This is good advice for anyone who's going to preach in public on a sensitive matter. Here's what Spurgeon said. You'll notice that in this chapter, the Apostle Paul has been dealing with the sins of the flesh, with fornication and adultery. Now, it is at all times exceedingly difficult for the preacher either to speak or to write upon this subject. It demands the strictest care to keep the language guarded, so that while we are denouncing a detestable evil, we do not ourselves promote it, "...by a single expression that should be otherwise than chaste and pure. Observe how well the Apostle Paul succeeds, for though he does not mask the sin, but tears the veil from it and lets us know well what it is that he's aiming at, yet there is no sentence which we could wish to alter. Herein he is a model for all ministers, both in fidelity and prudence." So as we look at Hebrews 13.4, I want to emphasize a couple of features about its structure before we make the application. The structure in Greek is very choppy. There are portions of the sentence that we infer, but they're not stated. You'll see them. If your Bible has italics to indicate words that are not there in the original, you'll see if you leave out the italics, you'll see how choppy it sounds. Roughly, roughly, a literal a literal translation would say something like this: "Honorable marriage among or by all, and the marriage bed undefiled." That's very choppy. You have almost no verbs at all in that. And then the second part: "For fornicators and and adulterers, God will judge." I want you to look at the st- the structure. This is a short verse, but it's not it's not casual. It's constructed very well. The pattern would be, if you use a, a pattern for poetry, A, B, A1, B1. The A and the B are this: Let marriage be held in honor among all. That's the A part and let the marriage bed be undefiled. That's the B part. And now we shift and make application for fornicators. Now, who are fornicators? They're ones that don't hold the marriage in honor. They are people that have sex. They have a relationship without marriage And the Bible calls that fornication. And those who commit it are called fornicators. The word's old-fashioned. We rarely use it today. And it's kind of a general term. In other places in the Bible, if the word adulterer is not linked with it, then the word for fornicator evokes a general term of, uh, of general sexual immorality. Sometimes it doesn't occur paired with the word adultery or adulterer. Here it does. Here we have two separate words. The first would be the fornicator, the one who has the intimacy of marriage but does not honor marriage because he or she and the partner are not married. They're the ones who don't hold the marriage in honor. Now, the second part, let the marriage bed be undefiled. That would be, in your scheme, that would be the B1 section. So you've got A, B, A1, B1. The B1 part, let the marriage bed be, be undefiled is a comment about the adulterers in the first part of the verse. Who are the adulterers? Those who have sexual relationships with somebody who's not their partner, who's not their legal spouse. They are adulterers. That's the structure of it. And then look at the conclusion. The conclusion is a future tense verb. God will judge. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. So there is the punishment, the discipline that God builds into his word for those who do not hold marriage in honor or who defile the marriage bed, either their own marriage bed or the marriage bed of somebody else. Those people God will judge. Look over, we're not going to spend a lot of time here, but look over at 1 Corinthians 6, 9. This was the passage that Spurgeon was preaching on when we introduced this this sermon. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and I'm I'm going to stop short of the conclusion, but we are going to come back to it. But not this time. This time I only want to read verses 9, uh, 9 and 10. 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous, I'm going to read this in in a a New American Standard rather than ESV. Or do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. That is the judgment that God has announced for people in these classes. God is holy. Now, we're going to come back to this passage, so if you want to put a bookmarker or something in it, there's, there's yet a subject to be touched upon. But going back now to Hebrews 13, well, we'll look at the other other verses on judgment. In Revelation, what we find is the word for fornication or fornicators is used in what appears to be a more general sense because the word adulterer is not linked with it. So it seems that that word, uh, and it's the word we get pornography from, pornos, from that word, at least in Revelation, it's a broader application. It means all manner of sexual sin, Revelation twenty-one eight, and we'll do two verses, uh, twenty-one eight and twenty-two fifteen. But as This is 21, eight. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, that's taking the word for fornication or fornicators and expanding it into a more general term, the sexually immoral, embracing all forms of sexual immorality. The sorcerers, the idolaters, all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And then in the last chapter of the Bible, Revelation 22, verse 15, we find these words. Outside, outside of the new Jerusalem, outside of the kingdom of God, outside of the heavenly realm, outside are the dogs, the sorcerers, and the sexually immoral. Same word, the word that we get the word pornography from, that is usually, when it's linked with adultery, translated fornication. But here it's got that, that sense of a, a broadening, sexually immoral. Outside are the dogs, the sorcerers, and the sexually immoral, and murderers, and idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood, liars, outside of the kingdom of God. So when we read this, and we go back to Hebrews thirteen four, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. What is God's design for marriage? In, in the simplest form, God's design is the union of a man and a woman, both virgins without sexual experience, being united in marriage for all their lives, being faithful to each other 100%. No other partners ever. Now, I know some of you are saying, wow, in today's world? And the answer is yes, in today's world. It does happen. Oh, that it happens more than we know about. But even in a fallen culture, the standard never changes. We don't. If we've got a bunch of high jumpers and they can't clear the six-foot barrier, we don't move the bar down to five foot six inches and label it six feet. We don't move the standard. The standard stays where it is. Now, I want to deal with some of the reactions that we get today to it. Objections. The first one would be probably this. But preacher, things are different today. Attitudes are changing. We don't look at at the culture the same way. People accept a more relaxed view of what the Bible says. They're not so strident and so narrow as you make it seem. Well, Star Parker, uh, a black woman who writes a column nationally syndicated, About a month ago, she quoted from a Gallup poll that shows the changing standards. For instance, this Gallup poll compared 2001 to 2022 about things that the American public described as morally acceptable. It's okay. In 2001, gay and lesbian relationships, 40% of the American population said Well, it's okay. In 2022, 71% said that. From 40% to 71% saying that's okay. Birth to an unwed mother. In 2001, 45% said, well, that's okay. By 2022, 70% said, yeah, that's okay. We don't have a problem with that. Polygamy. Great, Scott. Having more than one wife or one husband? Polygamy, even in 2001, 7%, I don't know where these 7% live. 7% said that was okay. By 2022, 23% said, oh, that's okay. That's all right. You can have more than one wife or more than one husband. Suicide, judged in 2001 as acceptable morally, 13%. By 2022, 22%. Pornography, the use of or the consumption of pornography, judged in 2001 at 30% acceptable. By 2022, 41%. Do you see the shift? Do you see the slide? We're moving away from any biblical concept of what's right and wrong to what the culture says is right and wrong. Now, Star Parker, in her column, picked out this. Probably the relationship is related to two other numbers in the polls. The question about whether religion is very important to your life. In 1965, 70% of Americans said, yes, religion is very important. By 2021, it had slipped to 49%, slightly under one half. When the question was, have you attended church in the last seven days? In 1960, 49% said, yes, we've been to church at least once in the last seven days. By 2021, 29%. Now, when we look at the slippage in culture, here's the question I want to ask you. What does this mean for God and what does it mean for God's word? the Bible. The fact that support for the Bible and for God and for Christianity and for the norms that the Bible sets up for what is ethically and morally responsible, it's all slipping. What does it mean for God and for his word? Now that's a trick question. I'll give you the answer. Absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. God does not ever hold a referendum about what you think. There is no referendum to reverse God's opinion about pornography, about fornication, about immorality of any kind, about adultery. There is no referendum. When God says it, it stands forever. We may waffle, we may change. We may try to skirt the issue. God and his word stand absolute. It does not change. He does not change. His standards do not change. Now, how else does a modern culture answer it? Well, here's the typical answer for someone engaged in an improper relationship. First off is probably something like this: my feelings tell me it's okay. Okay, now this, this Matthew covered a long time ago in, in one of our uh, Sunday, school, Sunday school classes. It's feeling driven. My feelings are okay. I'm okay with this. I don't feel bad about this. Now, the version of this uh, that comes around is I'm following my heart. I'm following my heart. Friends, that is the worst advice that could ever be given to anyone. Jesus never ever says, "All oh, my followers, I just love you so much. Follow your heart and you'll be fine. He never says that. He will never say that. What does he say? You follow me. Follow me is repeated over and over. Jesus said when he called Matthew from the tax collector's table, he said, Matthew, follow me. In the, in the resurrection appearances... After his his miraculous appearance on the Sea of Galilee, when he says to Peter and the other fishermen, boys, you didn't catch anything, did you? Now, that was designed to to invoke their shame. Peter was supposed to think, oh me. He has told us early on, on this very shore, that he would make us fishers of men. And now we've gone back to looking for the cod. No, that's not going to cut it. So Jesus said, you didn't catch anything, did you? And they say, well, no. All right, let down your net on the other side. You'll have a catch. And they did. Now, when Jesus appears that way and tells Peter three times, asks him, Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know that I love you. Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know that I love you. Peter, do you love me more than these? And Peter is heartbroken. And says, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. The key to it is not the verb shift from agapeo to phileo. That is not the key. The key is the threefold repetition. Peter, you remember I told you in the garden you were going to deny me three times? And you said, no, Lord, not even if I have to die with you will I deny you. Oh, yeah, you will. And he did. So Jesus repeats three times. Peter, do you love me? That's the irony of it. Peter, do you love me? Jesus, and then Peter says, uh, Lord, while we're on the subject, what about, what about that guy? And he points apparently to John, the, the beloved disciple. What about him? And Jesus said, Peter, it's of no concern to you what my will is for John's life. You follow me. Do you see that? It's the follow me. It doesn't, he doesn't say follow your heart. Never at the start of his ministry and in his resurrection appearances and all the way through, listen to me, you are never told to follow your heart, ever. There's a reason for it. The heart's desperately sick, Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart, and and this word lev in Hebrew can be encompassing, not only heart but mind, the rational part, every part that thinks and feels and decides and remembers It's all deceitful. The heart is deceitful above all things, desperately sick. Who can understand it? That's why it's not reliable to say, well, I'm just following my heart. Find something better to follow than your heart. Try the Lord. Your heart will mislead you. Jesus never will. You know, in that parable of the narrow gate, I've thought about this for Most of my Christian life, there's there's a broad gate, a broad way. uh, People think it's okay. They follow it. It leads to destruction. There's a narrow gate, and there's a narrow, difficult way that's straight that leads to heaven. I finally hit upon it. I know what the names of those places are. I know what we should call them anyway. The broad way should be called Follow My Heart Avenue. Avenue because it's broad, spacious, beautiful. It curves all around. But if you'll notice, if you start down it, you can't see the end from the beginning. It looks great in the beginning. You don't see the end because of the curves in the road. The end is hell. Now, how about the straight, the straight and narrow way? That should be called follow me lane. It's not a, it's not a boulevard. It's not a four lane. It's not a, it's not a freeway. It's narrow and it's difficult, and it goes to heaven. Those ought to be the names. Follow follow my heart avenue and follow me lane. Now, sometimes, particularly young people, but it doesn't have to be young people. They can be any, any person that goes down this road of sexual sin. I have a piece about it. I have a piece. It seems good to me. I have a piece about it. Let me recall to your mind the story of Jonah. Jonah received, this is the Old Testament, it's a short book, you can read it yourself. Jonah had a call from the Lord. Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh and preach to them that in 40 days I'm going to destroy the city. Jonah thought to himself, it comes out later in the story, Jonah thought, ah, I wish he would destroy the city, but he's too kind and generous and merciful. I'm not going to preach to them. They might repent. So he hops a ship going the other way, as far away from Nineveh as he can go. He has the money. He buys the ticket. He gets passage on a ship to Tarshish. He gets on the ship. He goes down below and falls sound asleep. A raging storm comes, and the sailors think, we're going to lose everything. The boat's going to sink. We're all going to die. Where's Jonah? Oh, he's got a piece about it. He's got a piece about it. He's sleeping in the hold. Now, think about that. He's sleeping while he is 100% opposed to the will of God. He is completely out of God's will. He's fleeing from God as far and as fast as he can go. And he he has no problem sleeping. Don't tell me, well, I've got a peace about it. Lots of people have peace about things they shouldn't have peace about. Jonah had peace, but he was wrong. So don't use your peace about it as a way to validate your rebellion against God. That won't fly. That's, or as the, the old folks said in, in the south, that dog won't hunt. It said in Jonah 1.4, The Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. There was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. <clears throat> then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. They hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and laid down and was fast asleep. If you'd woken Jonah up, he would say, don't bother me, man. I've got a piece about it. Yeah, but you're rebelling against God. Now, sometimes the people will say, in, in justification for immorality, the relationship makes me happy. The relationship makes me happy. And... We know that happiness is the goal of life, right, to minimize pain, maximize happiness. No, not at all. Where did you get that idea? You didn't get it from the Bible. Jesus never said, I've come so that you might have happiness. No, he said, I've come that you might have life. I've come so that I might make you holy and put you into my service. Happiness is never presented as the motivation for God saving us. He does not save us to make us happy. (coughs) If you imagine a modern-day parable, a young person goes to a busy railroad depot to buy a ticket and gets to the head of the line and says to the the vendor, the the, uh, ticket master, I want to buy a ticket to happiness. To happiness. The ticket master looks through all the trains that come and go said I'm sorry we don't we don't really have a train that runs to happiness. Well but that's where I want to go. Well what I advise is you get on the train on, on track number A13 right over here and I think you'll discover what you're looking for so the person buys the ticket runs to the train gets on board the train pulls out of the station and she says, the, the 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 young woman says to the conductor, "By the way, where are we headed? <clears throat> are we headed to happiness?" And the conductor said, "No, there are no no trains on this line go to happiness. This one's going to holiness." Oh, well, that's not exactly what I wanted. But as they went toward holiness, she discovered she was happier and happier. And then finally, the conductor said. If you'll stick your head out the window and look down at what the train's labeled, you'll see. Oh, it's the happiness train. It's not a destination. It's a byproduct of heading toward holiness. As you head toward holiness and sanctification, you will discover happiness, but it's not the destination. It's a byproduct of the right destination. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 says this is the will of God, your sanctification. That's a fancy word for holiness, your sanctification. And then he defines, well, what does it mean? All right, he spells it out, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. Okay, that makes it pretty clear. That's God's will. Don't tell me that, well, it makes me happy. This relationship I'm in makes me happy. That is not a validation of that relationship. What about this answer? Well, we're committed to each other, preacher. We'll get married later. Have you heard that one? We're committed to each other right now, and later, as we have a little more money, as we settle in, we'll get married. Listen, there's a one-line answer to that. Future intentions never justify present sin. You can never use, we'll do it in the future, so it's okay to commit to sin today. No, it isn't. Never was. Never will be. Future intentions to make something right never justify present sin. Well, the ultimate, the trump card of those who want to engage in illicit sexual relationships, no one has the right to judge us. I beg your pardon, there's one who does. The one who created you, he's got that right. He created both of you and his son died to save sinners. How about Hebrews 9.27? Just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment. Judgment is coming. It doesn't require your validation. It doesn't require that you agree to it. You could say, well, I don't believe that. Well, tough. It's coming, nevertheless. Death followed by judgment. It's there. The fact that you don't like it, the fact that you don't claim it, the fact that you don't believe it will not change it at all. It's appointed for human beings to die, and after that comes judgment. Then a chapter later in Hebrews 10.26 for if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there, is no, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Judgment is real, and it's coming, and the fact that you don't like it makes no difference whatsoever. It's simply a reality. Now, I want to move on to maybe the application of this, and I want to take a more tender and pastoral tone with this. Some of you would say tearfully, But, preacher, we've gone too far. I can't live up to the holiness of God because I've already violated the rules. What about me? What is there for me? Am I forever doomed? Will there be nothing good in my life? Because we've already crossed the line. It's too late to say don't cross the line, we're already on the other side of the line. The good news, the good news is, is what the gospel is about. First John one nine, if we confess our sins, you know this verse. Many of you've memorized this. If we confess our sins, he, Jesus, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Look at the two parts. If we confess, he does two things. He forgives us, but do you realize how sterile that would be if it's not coupled with the second part of that verse? What if you could be forgiven but not changed? So you're forgiven for what you've done, and then you go, you go out And do exactly the same thing again. That's the second part of the verse. He is faithful, always, to forgive and to cleanse. So that we don't simply receive forgiveness and then repeat the sin. We receive forgiveness and he cleanses us. He changes us from the inside. Not from the outside the way a legalist would whitewash the outside of a building. But from the inside with a new heart. There is still hope for the one who's crossed the line already. What should you do? Well, stop what you're doing. The, the first rule, when you find that you're in a hole, stop digging. Okay, that's that's an old country saying that still applies. If you, if you get caught in a sin, what should you do? First of all, stop sinning. Put an end to it. Repent of it. Now, what does false repentance look like? False repentance looks like Lord, I'm sorry, I acknowledge that, that you are right and I am wrong, and I really do want to be forgiven. And then with a wink you think, but I'm going to go right back out and do it again. I'm going to do it again. I'm not. That is not repentance, and that, that won't fly with the Lord. <clears throat> I was preaching in a jail ministry in, in Tarrant County Jail in Fort Worth. Big jail. They had 800, 800 county prisoners in that jail. So I was in one cell block. And a guy <clears throat> listened very intently, and he said, Oh, preacher, that sounds so good. I want to be a Christian. I want to be a Christian. I said, Well, there is nothing holding you back. Repent of your sins and come in faith to Christ. Well, preacher, there is one thing. When I get out of here, first I'm going to kill Mouse. He's the one who put me here with his, with his testimony. I'm going to kill him, but after that I'm going to be a Christian. I said, no, I don't think you've got the picture. You you can't do it that way. You can't say, I'm going to kill that guy. Oh, but I believe in Christ. And so as soon as I kill him, then I'm going to make my profession of faith and come to the Lord. I said, no, you, it doesn't work that way. You decide now. Oh, he said, no, that's not a decision. I, I am definitely going to kill that guy. But I do believe in Jesus. Well, not savingly you don't. Because you're still planning your sin. Okay. Now we're ready to conclude by going back to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. This is, the, this is the most hopeful thing I can give you, and it's wonderful. I read you two verses of 1 Corinthians 6. I read you verses 9 and 10. Okay, that's all the people that are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. And it looks pretty ugly. Pretty pretty all-encompassing. I didn't read verse 11, and verse 11 is one you can hang your heart on. Verse 11 says, And such were some of you. Paul's writing to believers in the church in Corinth saying, This list that I gave you of people that are not, not going to inherit the kingdom? The fornicators, the idolaters, the adulterers, the effeminate, the homosexuals, the thieves, the covetous, the drunkards, the revilers, the swindlers, all of that. And then the most remarkable words, perhaps in this letter, he said, and such were some of you, but you're not now. You were that way. You were fornicators, but you're not now. You were adulterers, but you're not now. You were liars, but you're not now. You were covetous, but you're not now. You were, now this is where you get into trouble with the woke generation. You were homosexual, but you're not now. Such were some of you, but you're not that way now. Look how that verse 11 reads. And such were some of you, but you, the ones who were like that. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. There is hope. There is hope. I know we live in a culture that is very ungodly. The the motivation and the justification for doing things wrong, particularly in the area of sexual ethics... It's everywhere in our culture. And I understand that many of our people, many of you maybe have fallen, some may fall, but is there hope? Yes. Yes, there is hope. That's what verse 11 is about. 1 Corinthians 6:11. Such were some of you, but you're not that way now. Glory be. That's that's good news. That is really good news. Every one of us, if you came to Christ as an adult, you probably can look back at things you did before you came to Christ, and you will blush. You'll think, how could I ever have done that? Well, you did. But I'm not that way now. I have been, I've been justified. I've been washed. I've been sanctified. Praise God, I'm not the same that I was. I am now different. That's the hope for today. God's standards don't change. He asks for purity, particularly in the area of sexual relationships. He asks for purity, but he offers forgiveness, cleansing, and restoration. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We admit to you that many of us, probably all of us, have done things in different areas that we're ashamed of, that we don't want to be reminded of, and we wonder, how could I ever have done that? But we did, and so we own it. But you, in your mercy and grace, have forgiven us, you have cleansed us, you have justified us, you have placed us in Christ and given us your spirit, and we walk in a different way, praise God thank you, Lord, for that. And for those who are in the midst of it wondering, how can I ever untie myself from the mess that I've put myself in? Help them to come to Christ and to have a legitimate faith in him and a legitimate repentance. Set them free, Lord, that they might be free, cleansed, redeemed, and put within the body of Christ to serve you in a noble cause. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.